I've always counted myself fortunate to have spent my late teens traveling as a missionary. Sitting at tables defined by other cultures opened up my eyes to new ways of seeing. It was during this time I got to travel to India and I was amazed by culture so foreign to my own small town, hidden away in the mountains of Northern California. It was my second time leaving my own country. I was lost in the vibrant expressions of life all around me. The crowded streets of Pune were a blend of striking colors, ornate jewelry, and spices floating through the air. On our first evening in the city, my group of Americans was invited to a house party, and we abruptly accepted their hospitality. At the party, evening stretched into night, and the tables were cleared, creating space for everyone to dance. It felt like we were in the middle of a Bollywood movie. Young and old moved without reservation to the dance floor in an almost choreographed fashion, driven by the music flooding the night. Seeing our stunned faces standing awkwardly to the side like we're at our first dance in eighth grade, people came and grabbed our hands, guiding us to the center and showing us the steps so that we could join the party. The dancing lasted until Saturday night threatened to become Sunday morning. We had to excuse ourselves since we were a missions team and would be expected bright-eyed and happy for the church service in a few hours. We entered the church service while the organ played, and I found a seat to wait for my time to preach. I couldn't understand the words being sung, so I let my mind drift with the melody. Suddenly it dawned on me. It was amazing grace how sweet the sound, and I thought this must be God, because we are singing the same song around the world in different tongues the same message echoing from the faithful. Truly, God must be an 18th century Englishman, and the hope for the world is to force all voices into his harmony. Looking around the room, the vibrant colors of last night's party were necessarily subsumed under the blessed effect of English colonization. These necessities are not an insult to India, by the way. Rather, they are a part of their liberation the righteous acts of protecting a salvation born out of English medium earth tones and proper three-piece suits. The Indian voices discover their own freedom and grace as their words and experiences fade into the background in order to echo the colonizer's hymn. Yes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that colonizes any people but me. What once was lost has now been found as we are baptized into English Christianity. This parable, born out of my own lived experience is a repetition of Hagar's journey. It can cause us to have a guttural response, which cries, Abraham and English Christianity did a lot of good. Why don't you talk about that? True, their mouths were filled with our words, but our words were better anyways. They are better off because of colonization. They are better off because we showed up. As we say these words, we cannot help but hear how hollow they ring in our own ears. Let us step into the story of Hagar then, in order to allow her voice to highlight what has been missed by our desire to protect Abraham and Sarah through silencing her, our desire to say that English Christianity defines everything. Hagar's story is framed by social ranking and a promised future. Entering into Genesis 16, we find Abraham and Sarah fearful because Sarah has yet to have a child. So out of necessity, Sarah uses her Egyptian slave girl Hagar has no choice. She is property, and thus her being given or taken is Sarah's decision. Abraham is passive. He's just following orders. Her objectification is not his concern. He just did what Sarah told him. So as we enter into verse 3, we witness Hagar's elevation 
born out of the need of Sarah to have a child. Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl. She gave her to Abraham as a wife. The sentence draws attention to social rank by mirroring the woman's epithets, their titles, from Shaphat to Isha, from her property to his wife. The epithet is important because they have terms for concubines and slave brides, but Isha marked a legitimate bride, and it is how Sarah herself was signified. This is where the tensions come. Promoting an Egyptian slave threatens her position. Once more, fear drives the story as Sarah projects onto Hagar. In verse 4, Hagar conceives and her mistress seems slight in her eyes. But we must remember that one, Hagar was a gift to Abraham from Sarah that was hoping for conception. And Hagar hasn't spoken yet. Her voice is absent from the story. Verse 1 even says, The Lord has kept me, speaking from Sarah, from bearing children. So they saw the act of conceiving as a grace of God. Therefore, Sarah sees the necessity of Hagar, and the blessing of God is a direct assault on her security. They want Hagar present as long as she doesn't upset the status quo, as long as it's just her body and not her agency. They want Hagar's body present, but Abraham won't fight for her protection, but she will be used and never valued. In all this, Hagar is still silent. Her title was changed, but not her position. She's completely subject to Sarah's desires, even as Abraham's wife. Verse 3, Sarah elevates her. Yet, insecurity comes, and she fears for her place. Because it became uncomfortable, she quickly reset the board by reminding everyone, in verse 5, my slave girl, not Abraham's wife, my slave, not my equal, my property will not replace me. Hagar was despised because the household needed her body, but had no room for her humanity. Abraham is present, but apathetic. He sees the tensions rising and remains ambivalent because he only cares about having peace in the house, about social order. He lets go of Hagar, his wife, telling Sarah, your slave girl is in your hands. Do to her whatever you think. Or in other words, abuse your position and power as much as you like. There are no consequences for you. Coming into verses 6 and 7, Sarah harassed Hagar until she fled, running into the wilderness. And it is here, in the wilderness, pregnant and afraid, that a one-time event happens when Hagar finally finds room to speak, and God is given a new name. The Lord's messenger comes to Hagar and says, Return to your mistress and suffer abuse at her hand. I will surely multiply your seed beyond all counting. Look, you have conceived and will bear a son, you will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heeded your suffering. He will be a wild ass of a man, his hand against all and the hand of all against him. He will live away from his brothers. Now there's two things to note here. First, name him Ishmael, the Lord has heeded your suffering. The name combines Shema and El, or the Lord listens. In Hebrew, listening is not separated from acting. So Shema is the same word as the Lord heeded, which means that when God heard the cry, it was that very cry that forced God into action. Ishmael's name was born out of lived experience. The Lord did not respond because of Abraham. It was because of her pain, and this was spoken over her son. Every time she says his name in the house of suffering when she goes back, he is told and she remembers, Ishmael, the Lord hears you. 
Second, the blessing of being an ass. For us, this may sound like an insult, but think of her story. Hagar was a necessary body without control in her own life. She was owned, she was promoted and demoted at the whims of Sarah. Her abuse was ignored by her husband. An Egyptian slave girl taken from the tribes of Northern Africa and despised for her necessary role in the family. The promise of being a wild ass who lives away from his brother tells Hagar her pain will end in her children's freedom. They will not live at the whims of Sarah's descendants. They will be strong and free. Her pain, her endurance, by the grace of God's promise, will produce freedom. Finally, Hagar speaks, and in doing so, she becomes the only person in the Pentateuch, the only person in the first five books of the Bible, to give a name to God rather than God tell them the name. She speaks to the one who addressed her, El Roy, or Elohim sees. The experience of God heeding her gave her the revelation, God sees me. God sees her, sees her struggle, the injustice from Sarah and Abraham, and is affected by it. God sees and validates her desire to become free and is moved to action. This is an important moment because it is Hagar who first shows us the God who shamas, listens, heeds the painful cries of humanity. It is Hagar's voice which first tells us about a God in search of humanity who sees us and acts because of it. She was subsumed under the story of Sarah's son. Israel, the main story arc, lost this truth in their tale. And they won't learn it until they experience life as Hagar 500 years later. After Hagar named God, Israel's hope becomes the God Hagar named, the one who hears and acts. Exodus 2.24 begins with God heard and investigated. It says, Shema Elohim, pushing that together because they didn't have spaces then. Israel's story begins with Ishmael, the God who hears, and that becomes the God who sees and investigates. And what called this to action? Why now? The same verb of suffering is used in both places. So the stories echo each other. The God of Exodus learned how to be the one who listens, sees, and responds from acting in an enslaved Egyptian's life. This wasn't learned from Abraham. It was first discovered in the mouth of an Egyptian abused by Sarah for being needed. It was lost for 500 years because Hagar was silenced. It couldn't be learned until Israel became Hagar themselves. This is because Sarah experienced Hagar as a threat. And Abraham did not have the faith to see that her inclusion, fighting for her, would expand their understanding of God. Hagar's voice echoes throughout the story of Christianity. In India, because of the colonized Jesus. In America, through the cotton patch Bible and slavery. In Canada, from the mother's cry due to residential schools. Each injustice driven by Sarah's fear that there won't be enough inheritance, enough room for both Isaac and Ishmael. What wisdom has this cost us? What names of God have been silenced because we couldn't hear? However, her children are learning to be a wild donkey, to be erratically free as each generation refuses to be subsumed, to embrace subservience because they hear the call of a God who hears and they are experiencing one who looks for them. The hope isn't chosenness, although we often conflate the two. The hope is Hagar's God who sees, 
experience in her son's life as Ishmael, the God who hears and responds. The experience of God through the eyes of Hagar, India, the indigenous, and black lives, which say God sees us too, will offer new names for experiencing God. The church cannot afford to wait another 500 years to learn the wisdom of Hagar. This is why we repeat Hagar's story. We repeat her story so that we, by faithfulness to her, can discover new endings. We repeat her story so that we never have to repeat her story again in this life. Thus, we strive to find a freedom and a hope that includes Hagar and not just her son in the future. If we learn to Shema, if we learn to listen closely and heed, we will experience Hagar's voice in the people crying out for justice today. What name of God will we learn from their cry? This will be discovered only when we humble ourselves enough to listen and see, because our God is the one who listens, heeds, and sees. Hagar is still waiting for her promise to be fulfilled. Listen closely. Can you hear her?